0: God of grace and mercy, God of wonder and power and blessing and might, meet us today in your mysterious words. Help us to find you in the songs and the images and the experiences that we have this day. Help us to find you and help us to find ourselves, the parts of ourselves lamb-like that we keep hidden under wraps God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you. Help lead us towards you and if they do not, help us to turn around. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I often think that revelation would be a little less scary to all of us um, if more of us were artists or if more of us had spent more time getting to think of ourselves as artists, because in the end, most of us are creatives. There's something about the revelation that is about that part of yourself that is accessed only when you're in a creative or dreaming or visionary state. A part of ourselves that isn't about rationality or logic or proof or argument, but that's about something deeper and stranger, and profounder, and more beautiful. It's true that there are lots of parts of this revelation of John that are frightening in their imagery, and in their passion, and in their strangeness. Um, A lot of them are the dystopian parts. John is living through a time of crisis in his community. Everything seems to be going wrong in his life, in his country, in his faith. And so he writes a little dystopia the way that we do today, the way that we did with 1984, the way that we do with Children of Men or Hunger Games or whatever your favorite version is of imagining the worst thing that could come out of the crisis you're experiencing now. But those aren't the only things in Revelation. There are also gorgeous, beautiful scenes like this one, like Revelation 5, where he imagines that the whole company of heaven Animals and fish and people alike is expecting that a lion will come to save the day, that a lion will come to show them the way, that a lion will come to have ultimate victory over all that has ever hurt them. And instead of a lion, it turns out that it's a tiny lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb with injuries, a lamb who has been slaughtered, and yet in this lamb, in this creature of weakness, this creature of softness, this creature that is everything that is the opposite of what they had expected to come out of the lion of Judah, they sense that there is power and wonder and glory. And so everyone begins to sing. And every time it talks about people singing, more and more people sing. At first it's a few, and then it's a few more, and then it's Everyone and every creature and every bit of the cosmos singing together, glory, 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 is this creation that we are a part of. There are a lot of books in the New Testament that talk about prayer and the meaning of prayer, Um, a lot of books that talk about ritual, but Revelation is the one that has the most scenes of worship, (laughs) of singing together, of being together. And that part that is singing and that is art and that is strange, I think is a Holy Spirit message to us to be more trusting of the things inside of us, of the instincts we have that don't always accord with what the world is telling us about how things are. Revelation has always been a big source of visual imagery as well, of art, and I want to show you one, um, Jim Youngnick, who's one of my favorite, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing it correctly because I've never heard him, but, modern Christian artists and you can just see in the middle right It's part of Revelation 5 other uh, are different chapters in the book but as strange it is is how powerful the imagery of this book is how it inspires art and music and exploration and I think it's because as much as John was in a crisis place that led him to all of this fear he was also in a dreamy place A visiony place (laughs) which leads you to see all kinds of things about the world that you might not have seen before. And in this case I think it gives him real wisdom, real wisdom that we tend to forget no matter how many times we've heard the story (laughs) about the core of what this Jesus story is that's at the heart of our faith and the heart of our Christianity. That the story of Jesus's life and death and resurrection is a lot of things But one of the biggest things that it is is a story about how what we expect winning to look like is basically always wrong. (laughs) How what we expect success to look like is basically always wrong. And that where we seek to go from strength to strength, from success to success, where we, we seek to show the world that we are strong and we have armor and we can do what we need to do, what Jesus is in fact inviting us to is to be Herding lambs, (laughs) soft and weak in the eyes of the world, but powerful in the eyes of God, powerful in the eyes of song, powerful in the spirit. I think it's really talking about the power of vulnerability, (laughs) the power of showing your belly and your soul and your parts that you're ashamed of to the whole entire world, Um, the power of being yourself as weak and powerless as that can seem and feel when the world is telling you to put on a mask of strength instead. For Jesus, there were all kinds of ways in which the empire that was around him um, told him power would look, told his followers power would look, right? They expected him to lead an army, to lead a battle, to take up the sword, to do all these extraordinary things, to win a victory, victory and make them the new empire. And instead what he did was die. (laughs) Um, And this is one of the big like crises of the early Christian community. How do we deal with this very, very strange thing that our God did? Does it even mean that he's God? Does it even mean that we should care about this person who we really thought had come to help us, that he did something so strange um, as look weak in front of people? But I think um, what he was really doing was being truthful to the mission that he had been given and being truthful to himself, that he had made a commitment to not take up arms, to not take up the tools of violence to create the new Christian kingdom. And so he didn't do that until the day that he died. He wasn't gonna take up manipulation as a form of power. He wasn't gonna take up hurting and power over. He was about power with and power through. And to take up those tools as much as he may have been able to, would have been to destroy the kingdom from the first because it would have just been making it another empire. So we're invited to think about what embracing vulnerability and weakness would look like in our own life. And that can be tricky because it's been done wrong and done harmfully a lot of ways over time. So I wanna talk just a little bit about why it can feel so threatening to think about ourselves as being vulnerable before others, like Jesus was, like a lamb is, like a dreamer is. Um, One of them is just that like, it's really hard to be vulnerable. We know how to do it when we're kids and then we slowly learn over the course of our lifetime that vulnerability can lead to pain or shame or anger. And so we start to shut ourselves off to it. We build up brick by brick walls between us, our own core, self and our own core vulnerability and the rest of the world and anything that might come in. But another is that this notion that part of what the Jesus story is about is embracing our vulnerability and knowing that Jesus is on the side of the most powerless. Um, That's been used as an excuse to say people who are powerless and on the wrong side of oppression should basically like deal with it and lean in, right? Um, that if we are being abused by a family member, we should take that on as our cross. We should take that on as our cross and we should forgive. That if we are um, of a race or a gender or a cultural community that is oppressed by our nation, we take that on as our cross. We lean into our powerlessness and vulnerability. Um, And that's just how it's supposed to be. We'll know Jesus better and one day it'll be better. And people are rightly suspicious of that. because that's not the kind of world that God wants for us, right? That's not the kind of life that God wants for us, is to be continually asking and inviting ourselves to be put into more harm or continually papering over or pretending that profound forces of evil harm aren't what they are. Uh, So that's why we're suspicious of this narrative of vulnerability, is because sometimes it's been used to excuse stuff or to promote stuff that's harmful and dangerous and hurtful and mean. (laughs) But that's not the only variety that vulnerability comes in. (laughs) It's not the only flavor, it's not the only way, it's not the only type. Many of you are probably familiar with Brene Brown, um, who has made her career now uh, several books off of digging in deeply to vulnerability and shame and the role that they play in our spiritual lives, in our emotional lives, and in our daily lives, Um, and the way in which great, joyous, brave, courageous lives are not possible without embracing our vulnerability. And one of the things she has said that I find most helpful for combating this lie um, that what vulnerability is is uh, leaning into when people hurt us rather than leaning into the truth of who we are is that she said vulnerability is one of the greatest casualties of trauma. When you have experienced trauma, either personal trauma or cultural and social trauma at the hands of a community, um, whatever that is for you, one of the first things that goes, one of the first things that goes is your God-given and innate gift at being yourself, at being vulnerable with others, at allowing the world to care for you and about being the soft version of yourself, about knowing that you can be loved and are worthy and deserving of being loved. And while The trauma of the world can teach us that there are spaces and places in which it's not safe or healthy to be vulnerable. It's not safe or healthy to put ourselves in certain situations over and over and over again. We're not called to go back to that person that hurt us and say that we forgive them day after day after day after day until one day they magically stop hurting us or don't and we just keep getting hurt. I think it is worth remembering that vulnerability is a gift Vulnerability is a gift in your life um, that helps you to know your belovedness and the, lovedness, the lo- belovedness of others that helps you to achieve intimacy in a way that is not possible if you're never vulnerable. Um, to know joy and courage in a way that is not possible if you're never vulnerable. And even if there are spaces in the world that have been made unsafe for you, spaces in the world where you can't be your whole self, making every space a space in the world where you can't be vulnerable hurts only you, <laughs> hurts only you. We may want to block off spaces and say, for wisdom, because of my experience, this is a place where I can't be vulnerable, but I have to have a place where I can. I have to have a place where I can be. I have to have some space and some place where I get in touch with that part of myself that I think of as the part where um, we are most Uh, able to be in touch with not only one another, but with the Holy Spirit, who often speaks quietly and creatively and lovingly to the strangest, softest parts of ourselves, (laughs) we have to have some place in our life where we can be vulnerable and where we create the conditions for courage, where we create the conditions where we can be fully vulnerable and from our vulnerability grow. Because vulnerability works both ways. Being vulnerable is both about being vulnerable about the things that you worry about the most that then people can say to you, please no, I love you, you're wonderful, and being vulnerable about the places where we have genuinely messed up and might be being called to grow in our lives and get better. We have to have spaces where we can be like the lamb, We have to have spaces where we can be singing with our full selves, singing a new song that is not the song of empire, but the song of intimacy and interdependency and belovedness. First, because I think we never grow and we never feel true love or safety unless we do that. We can't become the the version of ourselves that we hope to be in relationship unless we do that. And because it's where Jesus is calling us to learn the new tools of the kingdom that are different from the ones that the world has taught us. The world teaches us defensiveness and masks and lashing out and creating false ideas about who we are and who other people are and getting mad. Jesus teaches us a different set of tools. And this is the other place where um, I find the words of fabulous women helpful in understanding this, Audre Lorde, and I'm gonna bring it out so I can get the quote exactly correct. Audre Lorde, who many of you know, um, black, feminist, lesbian scholar from the 70s on in the United States, um, often described herself as someone who was an outsider in every community that she was a part of, but kept on trying to build communities, right? uh, She had so many identities, she was a mother and she was a scholar and she was, all of these different things in the world, but she was such a unique person, almost every group that she was in, she felt a little bit like she was on the outside, a little bit like she was on the fringe, a little bit like she was on the verge. But she also thought that the only possible way forward was both recognition of the oppressions that had shaped our community, real honest reckoning with the ways in which power was real in the world and had been used over and over and over again to harm, and that there was a different way of doing things, (laughs) that interdependence towards one another, that celebration of difference, that the ability to be in community would change. And she said something that people quote a lot now, which is, those of us who stand outside the circle of the society's definition of acceptable women And I think we can broaden that to acceptable people. She was speaking in the moment to a conference that was supposedly about feminism, but basically had all straight white feminists at all panels except the one that she had been invited to. And so she was sort of trying to uh, uh, invite people to think more broadly about who women were uh, and to challenge themselves to get outside of their own boxes of defensiveness. Those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to stand alone, unpopular, and sometimes reviled, and how to make common cause with those others identified as outside the structures in order to define and seek a world in which we all can flourish. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. This is the part that you've probably heard. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to those who still define the master's house as their only source of support. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. It's as true of our spiritual lives as it is of dismantling the forms of oppression that have shaped us so often in the world. That part of why Jesus calls us to vulnerability, part of why we are called to be lambs instead of lions, isn't just that it's healthy or good or that we're trying something new. It's that all of that lion stuff is what led us to the world we're in now in the first place and that world is unhealthy and broken and using its tools won't lead us anywhere better. (laughs) Using the tools of violence and power over and manipulation and defensiveness will not lead us anywhere better than we are today because that's how we got where we are. (laughs) We're going to have to find a whole new toolbox, one that for me in my faith Jesus used, right, so we at least have a good example (laughs) a whole new toolbox of what it means to be a human being and what it means to be human beings together, where we embrace the parts of ourselves that are hardest, where we ask one another and invite one another to be vulnerable and true, and where in the midst of that we find love and joy and honesty and openness to the other, creating the conditions to be more courageous, more Christ-like, more loving than we thought we could be the day before when we were only using the tools that a broken world had taught us. So how does this fit into um, our anti-racist journey this month, which is one of the journeys that we're on as a church? Uh, releasing. I gave you a wrong date last week, by the way. I was accidentally lying. Um, So the anti-racist audit that the church has been going through, we're going to be having a post-worship conversation where that's introduced to the church on October 22nd, not October 15th. And then on either October 29th or November 5th, two representatives from um, Crossroads, which is the diversity organization that we've been working with, are going to come here to do caucusing where we can process our feelings and thoughts about whatever we found in the audit and what it would mean to commit ourselves to it in the future. And that caucusing is gonna be um, caucusing for white people and caucusing for people of color, each led by a diversity or uh, uh, trainer, I'm <laughs> looking for the word, um, who is either white or a person of color. And some people, uh, you start to feel very anxious in your heart when you hear that. You start to get a little like, Scared, like why would we be segregated? Isn't that bad? Isn't that kind of the thing that we're trying to fix? right? Which I understand. But part of the reason why we're doing that is that we think that it creates exactly those conditions for courage. Those conditions for courage where we can find the places inside of ourselves to be more vulnerable and out of that become more committed to the work of anti-racism as well as the the work of spiritual growth than we're able to be if we never find those places. People of color being together in a caucus can be a way to find the freedom without having to um, manage or address or uh, articulate the emotions of white people to share the experiences of racism that they've had in the church, right? While those are gonna be varied and different. For white people, being together can be a way to start to excavate some of our racist assumptions or practices, like I'm a white person I grew up in America, I've been racist, like end of story, that's just how life is, Um, without having to worry about causing harm to others who are in the room, Um, we can be more honest and more vulnerable in that initial conversation about the work that we need to do, where we're at, how it makes us feel, the way that it makes us feel afraid or angry or whatever, Um, that initial conversation will set the conditions for courage so that we can have more combined conversations later down the road as well as more caucusing down the road because we're all dealing with different stuff, and different people are gonna, some of us are mixed race and are gonna feel complicated about the division into those two communities. Some of us have various uh, experiences of race and are gonna gonna feel complicated about that, but that's why we're gonna have multiple ways of communicating and multiple ways of processing the whole time. Because I have to tell you, um, this is another, (laughs) so one of the things that I had always uh, found One of the things I always wanted from Brene Brown's work, this vulnerability work, was an understanding of what about the danger of when society has already made you vulnerable for whatever reason, right? Um, Isn't embracing that then a really different task when your culture has already made you vulnerable? And she did a really interesting um, Facebook talk that some of you who've read her work might might, um, find helpful in delineating that, that I don't agree with everything in, but some of it is good, after Charlottesville. And the thing that she said that I found really helpful about the embrace of vulnerability is that she said, shame and white supremacy are exactly the same in this one important respect, which is that silence is what keeps them alive. Right, <laughs> that There are many things that are different about the experience of shame and the experience of white supremacy, but what is core the same about them is that silence keeps them alive. <laughs> that talking about them, discussing their role in our life, discussing their role in our culture is what ultimately will free us from their strictures, is what ultimately will help us to be agents of change who take apart these systems that have caused us so much pain and shame and harm. And so we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it, we're going to live about it. And my hope is that not only will that help us to think about our our role in the world as people who are trying to take apart systems, just like John was, right, Who, who thought that he could take apart an empire with a dream of lambs and lions, with a dream of singing and scrolls, who believed that that would help people find a new way to be in a world that was set up for them to be their worst selves that it'll also help us in our own spiritual lives, and that embracing having the hardest conversation, embracing being as courageous as we can be, finding the vulnerability either in the ways that we have been made to feel pain or in the ways that we have caused pain, which all of us have done, like the end, just all of us have done both of those things, will enable us to be greater followers of Jesus Christ and people who can see the Holy Spirit moving in the world and follow it better because we won't be following the voices that are saying to us, put on the mask, put up the wall, make everybody believe X, Y, and Z about how great you are or how woke you are, or how perfect you are, how spiritual you are. (laughs) The more we are vulnerable, the more we will take down those walls and the more the real Holy Spirit will be able to invite us to change our world and change ourselves because we won't be so busy listening to false voices. So that's gonna be our journey as a church and our journey as individuals in embracing our vulnerability. Um, I wanted us to have a practice of vulnerability uh, today, but almost all of them are ones where the conditions of worship are not conditions for courage. I'm not gonna like make you turn to each other and say something that you're nervous to say to another human being, right? I'm not gonna make you turn to each other and say something you've never said before, share your deepest secret. Um, But I do wanna encourage you to challenge yourself on vulnerability this week. Do something that scares you. Say something to someone or do something with someone that makes you feel a little bit at risk. And set up the things so that when you feel your vulnerability hangover, when you're feeling awkward and shameful about the fact that you actually showed your true self to someone, you know, you have the cup of tea or the episode of dumb television or the whatever that makes you feel better about that, set up the conditions but try to be vulnerable this week. And one thing we're gonna have at the greeting table for you to take away are pens, markers, and a piece of paper where one thing folks have found helpful is um, drawing the mask that you wear on a daily basis. Imagine the mask that covers up your vulnerability for you in particular. For some people, it's a mask of black and white that doesn't allow them to see nuance. For some people, it's the mask of a big smile and cheerfulness that never allows them to show sadness or anger. For some people, it's the mask of perfection that never allows us them to show flaw. What is the mask that you carry in your pocket and put on when you're getting nervous? And maybe knowing your mask will help you to take it off a little bit more often. So let's go out into the world and practice vulnerability Jesus is inviting us to. Jesus did it in a way that, yes, led to great destruction, but in the end led to great hope, refreshment, and rejuvenation. And we hope for the same things for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.